Airplane Labs. This is State of Demand Gen. Hey everyone, welcome to the State of Demand Gen podcast where we're going to mash together all the different content types, events, interviews, Demand Gen Live, when I'm a guest on a podcast, LinkedIn content, all here in audio format. If you haven't already, I would highly encourage you to sign up for the Demand Gen Live sessions that I'm putting together with Gatano Denardi at 7.30 p.m., 4.30 Pacific on Tuesday evenings. Tons of great content in there, lots of great insights, live Q&A, building a little community inside there. I'd highly encourage you to check it out. And now to this episode. What's up? What's up, G? We collected uh, quite a bit of questions. So we got a nice roadmap. We also, um, I took the thought, I put the thought in to actually map out an agenda that Gatano and I can jam on for the first 10 or 15 minutes. Let's see if he's... uh... What's up, Chris? What's up? <laughs> How's it going, man? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> What's up, dude? Not much. Where are you, man? I'm uh I'm in a um in uh there's like a patio outside of this uh this like co-working that's not a co-working space, but like the building I live in has an area where people can co-work from and there's a patio out there, so I'm out there. Nice. Looks yeah. looks pretty cool. It's pretty sweet. So let's dive in, man. Um, we got 39 people on here, which is great. So let's, uh, I actually made a roadmap for us so we can jam on it. Um, so the first one where I want to start is cause I, I've always, I've always pushed against the idea of best practices. The first, uh, industry best practices or industry benchmarks or things like that. The reason that I, um, the reason that I did is because in 2016, I read the Salesforce, you know, industry best practices of B2B demand gen or marketing. And then I did all the things and none of it worked. Uh, and then I figured out things that worked better. And so ever since I've really pushed hard against, um, against that stuff. And so just kind of wanted to, uh, to get your thoughts on why it's not always a smart thing to be following best practices or looking for benchmark data. Oh, and this is so great. I'm really happy you asked this one. So here's the deal. Be skeptical and be wary of everything you read that is produced by some kind of company that is throwing data at you or whatever, because it's just like politics. They're giving you, you know, an agenda that is meant to support their narrative of why you should buy something. And typically they, they confuse consumers by calling it best practices or expert trends, whatever. And then they make you think that that's what everyone needs to be doing because it supports obviously the need for an expensive software, which of course they sell. So the reason why you should not follow that is because one, they're trying to get you into the mindset of thinking that you need an expensive software in order to be successful. And two, straight up, when everyone zigs, you are supposed to zag. I love that. You, like, <laughs> like, I don't know how else I can say it, but I'll give you a great example. I was going with my team today to try and figure out what kind of title what kind of um, meta title we should use for a new page. So the first thing that we decided to do was search that term in Google and just see what are other companies saying. And everyone is using the same title. 
must have, must have, must have, must have, must have strategies, must have tips, must have. Everybody's saying must have. We're not going to say must have, <laughs> right? We're going to say, okay, everybody's saying must have. We're not going to say must have. We're going to figure out something else. So I'll end there. I, I could keep going, but, you know, Chris, I'm interested to get your thoughts. But that's that's what comes to mind for me, like, right away when I hear, why should I, why should I not, you know, follow best practices, quote unquote, best practices, expert, you know, strategies, whatever they, whatever it is that you're being marketed. That's what comes to mind. Yeah. And I mean, by the time a big company has figured out and then published that it's a best practice, the, the best part of the opportunity has already passed you by. And so you need to be early into these into these opportunities. Um, and then when I look at benchmark data, it's really interesting because you'll go into benchmark data and be like the average cost per click on a Facebook ad is, you know, $2 and 50 cents. And then we go in there and for some places where you have targeting, you can pay 11 cents a click and other ones you can pay $6 a click. And it really just depends on your situation and how you, how good you are at it. So unless you're striving to be average, you'll need to continue to challenge yourself to um, push the boundaries of what can be done and also push the boundaries of how good you are inside of whatever you're trying to do. So cool. I got uh, I got two more. We'll just kind of go through the topics and then we have a list of questions. And again, anyone you have questions, uh, I got the list of the people that we chatted to before G got here. Um, but anyone else have questions, feel free to drop it in the chat. The next one is first, I want to start with just your hot take on lead scoring and then I want to talk about if, if people were going to do it, what are the do's and don'ts? Oh my gosh. It's a good one, right? Uh, I, I, I came prepared tonight. That, that, that is really good. <laughs> um, all right. So this is going to be like pretty shocking. Well, maybe not shocking, but I've never, I've never seen anyone pull it off. Well, me personally, I have never to this day, I'm trying to figure it out. Like I've never pulled it off. Well, and I, I think it's important to get that out there because in theory, it's a great idea. It's an awesome idea. It's like, yeah, I would love to be able to put a point system together that helps me understand predictability of timeliness in a sales cycle. Yeah. Huh. But the reality is, and Chris, you and I have talked about this many times, there is never going to be a replacement for somebody that says, I am ready. I am going to go to that demo request forum. I'm going to fill it out. And I want somebody from sales to hit me up fast because I need to get information. I need to talk or, or call or call. So it's so tough, man, because yes, should you in theory go big on top of funnel and then quote unquote nurture? I know you love that term, <laughs> score them into some kind of, you know, formula that says, yes, this, based on this formula that we've crafted, they've taken these steps and now they are ready for sales. Yeah. I've never seen it pulled off well. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to keep ranting on this, but in short, I've just never seen it pull off, pulled off well. And I, I still believe you should just market effectively as best as you can. And just know that when they're going to hit you up, they're going to hit you up. That's kind of where that, that's, that's my high level take on it. I could get more deeper and peel the onion more, but I'll start with that. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see if there's any follow follow up questions and drop in the chat, but I have about the same 
the same stance on this is like, I'm marketing all the way to an inbound sales conversion. Anything before that, I have a theory actually, that if you pull people out early and go outbound, you actually push them farther away than helping them move closer to you. Um, it's a complete theory. It would be very difficult to have some type of scientific experiment to prove that out. Um, but I've been like considering the idea of doing an ebook campaign for this, just for the sake of this purpose, which is split people two groups of 500 people have 500 go outbound with two outbound. And then the other 500 to sit and continue to be in an, in a marketing stream. And then, you know, 12 months later, map back the revenue and understand what, what happened between the two groups. Again, it might not even be statistically significant, but that's like the best way that I can figure out to test it. Um, and then I think that it, the the place where I have seen it work and I'm seeing it work right now is on using it purely as a feedback loop to marketing as to the quality of the people that are being submitted. And so we have a, a grader that's from A to D. So A being like VP plus title inside of the right company at the right size. So all firmographic stuff um, automated through Marketo. And then B's would be directors and C's would be managers and D's would be garbage. Um, and so you can watch and see, cause if you get 50 demo requests, like what if 35 of them are D's, did you actually get 50 demo requests or did you get 15 because 35 of them were junk? And so we, I've been using that and I think I'm going to roll that out at several other companies, um, mainly for bottom of the funnel feedback loop. That's faster than sales feedback inside the pipeline. Um, and then the last thing that I'll put on this is that I think it gives, I think it gives marketers an excuse not to market through the whole journey. So I think it allows marketers to take a shortcut and not do the full job of getting someone ready to buy a demo. I just get someone to look at this web page and then read this email and then I'll send them four more emails so they'll get four points and then I can pass them off to sales. And so I think it's, yeah, it's like I did my job. I did my <laughs> My minimum requirement of, of sending four random emails, one has a blog article, one has a webinar replay link, the other one has an ebook, the other one has an infographic. Yeah, the, some of them got open, some of them didn't. Okay, yeah, this is, let's pass this through. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. it's like, what are you doing there? I'll tell you, one of, the, one of the things that I've been experimenting with is demo form and just like form optimization period. I was just going to bring this up. This is awesome. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Perfect. So this is the way you really cut out a lot of the problems for sales because let's be real. The last thing that sales wants to deal with are, are like junk or garbage leads or leads that just aren't quite ready or not in a buying cycle. Like they don't want to waste their time on that. Now, when you have a big inbound engine or just a big engine period, there's going to be some of that no matter what. You're never going to be able to filter all that out. But a lot of companies have never considered putting a timeliness question on their forms, such as when are you looking to buy or change, you know, X, Y, Z solution. And then you, and then you bucket the drop down answers based on buying cycle. So you can say, let's say you have, um, you know, a cycle that could range from anywhere from, you know, one to three months all the way to a year or longer what you could do is have a drop down selection that says one to three months, four to six months, six to 12 months. And then a final option that says, I am not looking right now. And then there's a lot that you can do with that information. You know, if it hits, you know, ICP and it says one to three months, right to sales. You know what I mean? 
if it's ICP, but not ready to buy, in my opinion, still go to sales, create that introduction, start building that relationship and assign that opportunity, that potential opportunity to somebody. And then it's kind of up to them to, you know, hit them with touch points and, and, you know, build a relationship organically. I, I don't think you should rely on marketing at yourcompany.com to send emails to that person who's maybe ready to buy a $30,000 product 12 months away. Is that on demo or like a mid funnel or anywhere? Cause on demo, you'd that, assume that they're kind of like in the buying cycle now. Yeah. I think, I think on demo, you know, that's still, that's still a relevant question because just because I want a demo doesn't mean I'm going to buy right away. I may just be doing demos as part of my research. I may, that's how big companies buy shit. Mm. You know, they go into like me, like when I'm uh, right now, I'm, I'm in the market of a marketing attribution tool and system, right? Um, that's a huge topic that I think uh, growth marketers just haven't cracked, haven't figured it out. And I've been soliciting some, some tools, but I'm not ready to buy right now. I'm just early in my, in my process. But, you know, asking that question as a, as a qualifier on a forum is going to work wonders for your sales team because the biggest, the biggest challenge really aside from relevance and, and, and just overall value and, and does it align with the needs of the, the potential customer is timeline. Timeline is the hardest thing to solve for right now. Yeah. And so what I was going to segue to, which is kind of interesting that you went there is just talking about a couple key points on like sales conversion handoff to sales. So somebody comes in, I want a demo. And then like, what is that process? Cause I see a lot of companies essentially just watch a bunch of their marketing dollars get wasted because this process is not locked in. Um, and I spend a lot of time like looking at data points and things like that. So I'm happy to share some key metrics that I look at. Um, but just wanted to get your stance. So like you were saying, come in, put timeline. I know companies are playing around with um, automatic calendar booking direct to a rep routed on IP um, IP address or something like that. If it's, if it's territorized um, like what are you, what are your just like general thoughts on that handoff process? Let's assume that they're ready to buy and they commit a, uh, submit a demo form. Like what happens from there? Yeah. So I know there's a new technology. It's not necessarily new, but it's, it's definitely picking up popularity in the, in the space. Uh, it's called Chili Piper. And the, and the idea behind that is let's say a prospect completes a demo request form. What happens then is they get hit with another screen that basically allows them to go right into a demo with someone right there or schedule time that works for them based on sales calendar availability. And I think that's kind of cool because if they say, let, like, let's just say they want a demo like right now, like right then and there, they're ready for it. I think you can really work wonders for your, for your sales, your sales engine, because time to contact is a big, is a big, a big factor. Mm -hmm. Like it's no secret that time kills deals. And the longer it takes for you to follow up and respond to an inquiry, the longer um, that separation is. And let's be, let's, let's face it. Shoppers now are doing this for, you know, three, four, five solutions at a time. So really there's, there's an opportunity to win more if you can get to them faster. So that's, that's kind of the first thing that comes to my mind when, when we start talking about the subject, there's a lot of different ways we can kind of pivot the combo, but that's, that's what I start to think about. 
Yeah. And then a couple things, a couple core things to look at that I look at to know whether or not that process is working. Um, is one, I look at time to time to first touch. So whatever that is, like I, sometimes what I'll do is I'll actually go and submit the demo form with dummy information and, and just go through the experience with the company I'm working at and find all the places where there was friction or it didn't work. So I submitted the form. I didn't, I got an email back 56 minutes later and the guy was like, Hey, can we set up a, like a call with no calendar link? And it's like, how many emails are we going to have to go back and forth before I can just get a demo on the books? And so there's like just chili piper would tighten that up. There's a lot of tools that could tighten that up. Um, the next metric that I look at is, um, conversion rate to meeting. So how many of those people actually converted to into a meeting? And then after that, it's how many people sat on the meeting. And then the last one that I look at is how much time between when someone submits the form until they get the demo. I think this is super interesting, especially for companies for long sales cycles. If you have a 90 day sales cycle and it's taking you 30 days to give someone a demo, you're losing a lot of deals and you're slowing down your own process because within, yeah. the, within those 30 days, they're going to go find your competitor that'll actually give them a demo straight away and they'll buy that one. Yeah, this is, this is a huge problem. I mean, here's, here's how it works at a lot of companies. You, you get an inbound lead. They, they put their info into the form and there's, let's be real, these inbound SDRs, they're not really taking time to go and research who this person is before they get them on the phone. Like you said, Chris, they're sending that boilerplate, that boilerplate. Hi, I Sometimes it's automated. Sometimes it's, yeah, a lot of times it's automated. It's, I, I saw you, you know, submitted a request for more info. I'd love to chat. When can we chat? You know, what are some times that work for you? I'd love to support your business, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, you finally go back and forth with a couple of emails on that. You get, you get in touch with like the first, the first layer, the first line of defense for the company. You're talking to some junior SDR probably. Then guess what happens? Okay. So I'd love to set up a time for the next demo with a solutions engineer, um, or a solutions expert. Uh, our solutions experts are not available right now. Um, I can check when the next time is they're going to be available. Let's see here. Uh, then you got to go through that whole thing, right? Then you, then you, mm. then you finally figure out time with the solutions expert, you get on with the solutions expert and then, you know, oftentimes even then it's like, Oh, so you want to know about that product? Oh, I got to get the, I got to get the CRM specialist for that. Yeah. George says it sounds so broken, but you, you'd actually be surprised how many companies <laughs> do things like this. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, cool. so, so you got to go to three, sometimes three layers. So you, sometimes you have SDR to the AE, to the solutions expert, to the engineer of the product like there's a lot of people you like it's ridiculous sometimes how many mm -hmm. you know you go around in this hamster wheel you talk to four people you spent like four or five hours on the phone with all these different people re-explaining the same shit over and over again and then these companies wonder why people don't buy so let's pivot here give some people some actionable stuff the last thing on on my agenda again in the chat and then we have three or four like quick questions we can go through as well i know matthew's got a cool exercise we can cover later so, um, just want to run through, uh, quite a bit changing on the, on the LinkedIn platform. Just wanted to see like present day, uh, if you had anything kind of like new that you're seeing that can, people could walk away with and actually do something with tomorrow. Um, I, I, I kind of like some of the old shit we've been talking about, Chris. Like I think some of the fundamental stuff that just never kind of goes away. So like, for example, doing the, um, doing the product style ads 
with the carousel. What about organic? What organic LinkedIn? That's uh, kind of, yeah. <laughs> I think I've talked, I've talked on this topic so much. Cool. I, I think I've spilled my guts out on it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, I could go through the list, but I feel like I don't want it. Maybe you can share anything. Cause I feel like I've already said anything and the stuff that, that I say is never anything new. Yeah. I mean, the, the only thing that I, w- I think I would challenge people to do more of is leave more comments. Um, so I'm getting back to doing that. And it, for whatever reason, when I leave 10 comments, the flow of my content actually works better too. Because I have more of a conversation, more different ideas in my mind, different things I'm talking about because it's introduced with ideas from other people. Um, and so that's one thing that I would uh, would recommend. Cool. Katana, this one is totally for you. Um, we're looking for the best choice for an SEO tool, SEMrush, Ahrefs, Moz. Okay. So like top level thing to know is they all do the same shit (laughs) that's top level thing to know they all do the same shit um from my experience moz is excellent for beginners it's very basic it's very easy to use there's not a lot of choices of things to do it's not overwhelming it's meant to be stupidly simple so if you're going the beginner route and it's, you want something simple to understand. You want to kind of get your groove, like figure out your groove. You don't have a large team. You just want to do a couple of things and do them well. Moz is a great option. And it's also, I think, the most affordable in terms of the entry, the barrier to entry. If you want to go really advanced, you're a nerd like me, you're going to want to go with Ahrefs. Um, I find that Ahrefs can... Um, can get the, the best data. It has the most data points. It has the, it, 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 um, the Ahrefs bot is, is the best crawler. I think of the bunch. It, it has the largest data index based on my experiments. And, um, I would say that in terms of just great value for your money, Ahrefs is going to be like the best, in the middle of Ahrefs and Moz is going to be SEMrush. SEMrush is arguably the most known. I find that the, the SEMrush metrics for keyword research can sometimes be off. I find that the backlink data can also sometimes be a little bit off. Uh, actually, wildly off, excuse me. But I, but I also find that SEMrush is the most accurate and best for competitor research. So it all depends really on what you're trying to do, you know, um, what your comfort comfortability level is with SEO. But in terms of those three tools, that's how I would break it down. Uh, personally, I'm a customer of Ahrefs, but that's just. Sweet. I have absolutely zero to add on that topic. Um, Cool. So Gary, I saw your question. We're going to, we're going to get to that right after Matthew, you want to, uh, I know you sent me an email. You want to go through that example. I think that would be like a cool exercise for everyone. Yeah. So kind of pivoting a little bit here. What's up guys. Uh, thank you guys so much again for doing this. Uh, so I'm starting at a new company and I need to develop a content strategy that's largely been abandoned 
over the last couple of months. So I'm wondering where should I begin and where can I get a quick win to start showing contribution quickly while also scaling up the larger strategy. So to give a little background, um, the company sells customer retention services. The average customer value is $1,800 a month in monthly recurring revenue. Selling to subscription services, e-learning, membership businesses, anyone that has like a monthly recurring revenue model. My feeling, my feeling on this one, and most people skip this step, but when I skip it, I always recognize that I should go back and do it because then everything works better, is that you should find 10 people in the local area that are customers and go and visit them in person. Obviously, that's not feasible tomorrow. Um, but have, if you can have a zoom as the next best thing, um, I really do think just talking to people is the, is the number one thing to do when you're developing a content strategy of customers. Um, so that's where I would start. The next place that I would go is to try and map out like little carve out little places in the, in the market that are underserved. And so your ACV is low. You're not competing with Zora right? Zora selling to enterprise. And so carve out whatever the market is, try and characterize who those people are, and then try and figure out what they care about inside of their business. Obviously, it, it's going uh, to gonna translate to revenue or retention in how you position it. Um, but there's a lot of different... There's a lot of different iterations on where you could go with that. Um, and I'll kind of let G jam on that for a minute. I'm sure we can go back and forth on this one, but I think the step one, you have to talk to people that use the product right now. Yeah. Um, I would, I would definitely agree with Chris. Um, in fact, that's, you know, when I, when I started at sales soccer, that was the first thing I did. I interviewed 20 customers and it was the best thing I could have done. Um, I, that alone can give you the content strategy. Um, but to, to add on to that, um, some things you can do are look at um, competitor research, look at their keyword, look at what their what keywords are they targeting in um, tools like SEMrush, Ahrefs. Obviously, we talked about that. Um, the next thing you can do is actually just start putting yourself in the mind of a customer. So after you talk to the customer, think about if you were a customer, what are things you would search for? How would you search for them? And then use like Google and auto suggest and, you know, all people also ask the, the people also ask box feature and look at the bottom of the search results for related searches. And you will start to get a beautiful keyword universe of, of things to start creating content for. The next thing I would probably do after that is use a tool called answer the public, which is not a very well known tool because it doesn't give you search volume. But what it does give you is a great set of question-based keywords. So it'll take um, any, like, let's, let's call it a head term. Like, let's say it's customer retention as the head term. You pop that into answer the public, and it's going to give you the what, who, how, why, when questions around all that stuff. And you're going to have a beautiful roadmap of keywords that you can build content around based on doing those things. So talking to customers, using competitive research, and, and thinking about question-based content is going to give you a lot that you can do. And then from there, I think the, the only answer is to just get started. I like starting with a long-form pillar show, but podcasts or a video show, not live to start. Um, so you could have a podcast 
I would make up something interesting and edgy, like small business and beers, if that's what you're going after, whatever you decide how you want the brand to, to play. And then I would talk about, so figure out where, draw, try and draw at least initially some lines around where you're going to stay. Um, I like being more niche, especially when getting started, especially if you're at a startup and you're competing with giants in your industry. I like being um, really going in a, in a niche. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like, uh, that's kind of where I would go. Yeah, I like it. Cool, cool. Um, we got Gary's question here, which I think is a is a really interesting one. So um, it says, if you had a thousand dollars to spend on LinkedIn and you were trying to demonstrate a proof of concept to leadership on using LinkedIn ads for demand gen, how would you spend it? Assuming no previous ad spend on LinkedIn. So Gary. Um, <laughs> You know, a thousand is too too low, but depends on what the cost of your product is. That was going to be my next follow up question. I don't know about you, Chris. Yeah, I mean, when when you try and do things for short term results, you do the wrong things. And so, if you're trying to use a thousand dollars to prove as a proof of concept to something, it's going you're. I think you'll fall into a place where you do the wrong things to generate a metric that makes executives believe, but isn't actually the things that you should be doing long-term. I think you'd actually have to game the system for this to prove to work. So if you think about, let's just pretend LinkedIn ads are a hundred dollars CPM, which for some audiences it will be. So you're going to hit 10,000, you're going to get 10,000 impressions of the ad um, in a feed sponsored feed ad, like the impact and let's just pretend it's a 1% click-through rate, which is really good. The industry benchmark is 0.3%. Um, so let's just say you're at the industry benchmark. You put 10,000 impressions. You get 30 clicks. You know, If you had a lead gen form there, you might convert at 20%. So you get six leads. Um, and that's like absolute best case if you knock it out of the park. Um, so I'm not sure that... I'm not sure that you're setting yourself up to succeed in this type of experiment. Um, if I had to, if you like kind of, you know, force me to give you an answer, I would, I would try to use, um, sponsored in mail to drive some type of result just because it's less expensive. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Cool. Cool. You probably, cool, get, you probably get a, you probably be able to get a better answer for a thousand dollars of exploratory testing spend with Google ads, mm -hmm. you, you find the specific kind of keyword, you know what the cost per click is going to be. You align that based on intent to the audience, you do some intent based targeting. You got the keyword that you know you want to bid on or the set of keywords, you know, you want to bid on, you know, your cost per click, you got your ad copy, you got your landing page. That's a good way. I think with a thousand bucks, I think it, especially if the CPCs are low, you can get a good amount of volume there. You can, you can get a good test going with that. But for LinkedIn, I don't think it's the right channel for that kind of experimentation. Yeah. I think that's a super answer. Okay. What else has everyone got? Nothing in the chat. Somebody, uh, Chris, this is an interesting one I got on LinkedIn. Okay, cool. This is an interesting one. I, I'm curious to hear your answer. I knew the answer right away, but I just want to see if, if you think how I would think in this situation, but someone hit me up and said, Hey man, I'm a startup founder. Um, you know, we're pre-seed, we're looking to, we're looking to get our, our concept and our company, you know, name out there to, we're trying to get exposure to investors and VCs. 
how would how would I go about using a, a, a Facebook advertising campaign to attract the eyeballs of investors and hopefully create inbound interest in what I'm doing to the investor slash VC crowd through advertising? I wouldn't run ads. Exactly. That's, that's what I told them. I would, I would do it. I would, I would I do that yeah. pure, pure LinkedIn organic, build a sales nav filter, connect with 50 to a hundred managing partners and investors at the venture capital firms that you're interested in being in and produce content every day. Yeah. That's what that's I would exactly, do. That's exactly what I said. I, I, Cause I was thinking about it. Like why would you run Facebook ads to VCs? Like, <laughs> by the way though, we are, um, one thing that we're going to experiment with. So we have, uh, a tool we're testing it out called metadata, which basically allows you to build what I believe to be close to LinkedIn quality targeting, uh, on Facebook through custom audiences. Um, and so we're testing it out with two accounts and we're actually going to, I, I love experimenting with things on my company because then I get to really understand the impact, not just through my clients. And so, um, and one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to pull out a, um, a list of people that work at the top 20 VC and PE firms that have come that have com- hold companies that we want to work with and run Facebook ads, like uh, how we're doing our new ABM offering or basically following a similar formula to what we do in hopes that they're, you know, go to market center of excellence person sees the ad and says, Hey, this is smart. Um, maybe I'll introduce you. So that's just kind of like, an ex- I like to run those experiments because really like getting in there when it's your own money, um, really forces you to understand how effective the plat- the execution really is. Awesome. Hey Chris, here's a, here's a question for you. Have you ever had an engine that was spending a lot on search and display and retargeting on social, like, and, and have you ever just like shut one of part, one part of the engine off completely just to see what would happen? So like, for example, like, let's say you're spending 300 K a month and like 200 K of that is going to search and the other hundred K is going to, um, uh, display retargeting across Google and social. Have you ever just like shut off, let's say like the display part entirely on like one platform to see how it would affect your funnel and see like what the impact of that has been? Or have you not ever done anything that radical? Um, I shut things down pretty, pretty drastically for things that I know aren't working. Um, and so if I'll go in like to new companies, they, I have data on all the things that they've been doing. And so I know that they're running like Google AdWords to download an ebook with broad match keywords. And I look at the people that are submitting the form and I know how irrelevant they are. I'll shut off 60 K a month straight away. Um, for other, for things where it's a little bit less clear, like there's, there's a difference between it being completely clear that what you're doing is not working and a difference between not exactly sure how much it's working. And so, um, for things like the broad match AdWords to an ebook. And then you look at those, those things can get shut completely off spending $70,000 a month on paid social LinkedIn ebook downloads that are targeted by industry with no other targeting layered on top of them. You can shut that down straight away by looking at the contacts that are submitting. So, um, just display, like if we're going into something and they're running a lot of display, we'll typically shut it off. Um, while we kind of like rebuild the engine, 
So, um, yeah, I, I, I would say that I do do that pretty drastically because I just feel that the, the mix that we put forward, at least at a, at an entry point level. And so like in general, the mix is going to be at the beginning, somewhere between 20 and 30% AdWords and then 40 to 50% Facebook and then 10 LinkedIn, 10 YouTube display is kind of like the starting point. Um, and then we optimize from there. And then a big decision factor is whether you can actually get to the people you want to on Facebook. Cause if you can't, then you're going to have to allocate more to LinkedIn. But, um, short answer. Yes, indeed. How about you? Yeah, I, I, I did that recently. I, I, what happened? I did, I did that recently. Um, I basically, I was doing a lot of, I was doing a lot of, um, display retargeting to, um, to white paper and I realized it was worthless. So I shut it off mm -hmm. just yeah, because I mean, it was a new report that we produced and we wanted to kind of get it out and see what it did. And we wanted to test basically one white paper against another to see if like the one that we produced ourselves that had, you know, exclusive insights and market research, if that was more appealing to our audience than say cloud phone systems for dummies. So we licensed from, from Wiley publications, mm -hmm. the four dummies use. Mm -hmm. And the one that we produced did significantly better than the Wiley publications one. But what we also realized is that, um, we don't really care about white paper downloads right now. For sure. Point blank, point yeah, blank. I mean, mar don't. marketers get scared about turning something off because they think they're missing out on something. So like when in 2016, when I took our trade show, when we did, went from 15 trade shows to three in one year and we recouped somewhere between three quarters of a million and a million dollars a year in expenses for marketing to put somewhere else on that, like, there was absolutely no negative business impact to making that change. Nothing happened that was bad, but a lot of people are scared to even cut one. And so, and then you could use that exact example in a lot of different executions. And so, um, I continuously challenge the, the effectiveness of things, especially when there's, it's more of an emotional rationale to the tactic than actual data of how much it's working. And unfortunately that same, <laughs> that same idea can be applied to employees. <laughs> How so? You could, uh, well, for example, I know, I know some companies that said, you know what? Um, we need to, our marketing team is just too bloated. We've identified a list of, of low performers. It's a lot of them. We're going to, we're going to lay them off. And they went ahead and did that. And then they, then they looked at like their performance and their performance got better. So Talk that's how that. That, so, that happens. So that happens in big companies. You, you know, what, what ends up happening is the default for a lot of people is, Oh, we need to hire more. Like example would be like, you know, advertising, right? Like, do you really need somebody to, manage Google ads only. And then another person to hire, to, to manage like acquisition on, on social channels. I hate specialization of those roles, by the way. I, I hate specialization of those roles as well because you, you create this kind of vacuum defect. Um, but the reality is 
a good marketer that if your spend is not like, look, you know, let's just say your spend is under a million um, for the, for all that combined, you don't need to separate all that out. Right. So, so you just end up getting, you know, we're doing more events. We need more field marketers. Oh, we need like they hire, they don't hire well enough based on like numbers and data. They number based on workload and how people are feeling. And then before you know it, you have this big bloated system of, uh, uh, and you have a lot of roles that are overlapping in, in, you know, um, basically taking on tasks and workload. And then over time that, that effect keeps multiplying. And then you realize it, it gets to a, like a, to a breaking point and, and you're like, how did our marketing team get to 80 people? <laughs> and then you look at the, you look at your project management tool, you see who's carrying the burden of the tasks and you realize, well, we really don't need 80 people. We only need like 40. So there are examples of friends of mine who have told me this, that, you know, recently that they've unfortunately had to lay off some people, but it wasn't because the business was tanking because of COVID. It was just, they realized that their, their teams were bloated mm -hmm. and they cut down, you know, 30% of marketing roster and had zero impact on the pipeline revenue and, and lead performance. In fact, it, it was the opposite. Mm -hmm. It was the opposite. Well, and they put all that money back in the bank in terms of salary. So I think that, that, that same thing you just said, Chris, about, um, getting more efficient, getting more nimble applies to, to the, the roster and employee side as well. We got two questions that rolled through. They're both great. Um, Elaine, you want to ask it or you want me to read it? The geofencing one. No, you read. Cool. Um, so the question is, um, have you used, so speaking of display, have you used geotargeting, geofencing effectively? I have never been able to, to figure out geofencing. Geotargeting is easy, but geofencing I have not. Yeah, so um, as early as 2015, like somebody was trying to sell geofencing at a conference and I was like, why am I going to pay someone to do this geofence? I'll just do it myself. And so like, and I've figured that out over time. So if you have a conference and you want to hit all the people at a conference, then you can just put a half a mile radius around the convention center and do some like very basic interest targeting to try and cut out some of the people from surrounding areas and just run ads to the entire conference. Um, the challenge is that it, if you're trying to drive someone to a booth or something like that, it doesn't actually work very well. Um, you could do the same thing in retail. And so if someone was within a mile of your store, you could have a mile radius around your store and always running a 10% off walk-in coupon or something. It's like an easy retail one. Um, so yes, I think you can do it. I've never used it in display because you can do it in social and I just think social is more effective. Um, and so, um, have, have not done it that way. The second one in geo fencing type things is usually someone else is selling you the geo fence. So you're like paying a premium for an audience that to, to do that. I just don't think is worth it. Same. I've never, I've never figured out a good use case for it. So cool. So I, I could, if I could just drop in on, on that question then, um, on the geofencing, the way I've seen it effectively done is you want to very tightly target that particular building that the conference might be in and use that time period just to gather the information, not actually to serve to people at that time. You're only picking up about 40 to 60% of the devices anyway while you're in there. And then once you've got that information, then you target people after the fact. 
So it's not trying to drive traffic to the booth per se. In fact, it's more a technique to use when you're not even exhibiting at the show itself, but you know all the people you want to talk to might be gathered in that location. So the more tightly you're able to target, um, the, the better it is for you in the long run. And you do the serving after the fact. That's yeah, just, I just the use case I've seen. I, I yeah, it's a it's a reasonable use case for people that I don't think take the time to really understand the dynamics. But you could you could get to the same audience better by doing some form of cold targeting than trying to build a gate around a conference and get the people inside there. Is my view. What I where I found it useful is when there's international shows that I'm never going to go to in Geneva or Finland or some other city someplace, and the 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 center that the event is being held in is really gathering a very very tight very large proportion of audience kind of rich target for me, but I don't have a budget to go to all these international mm. shows. Um, and then I retarget to those people and I'm driving traffic to my website where the, the offer and everything is happening, but it's not necessarily during the time of the show, during the time of the show, everyone's busy doing the show. Yeah. It's after everyone's gone back to their home offices and stuff like that, that I'm hitting them, but I've gathered their information on their phones. Cool. Um, just want to hit this one here. So Dave has one. I'll read it off. High ACV product, more than 100K a year. TAM, small, top 300 retailers, all enterprise. They don't want to talk to each other about the successes they've had with my friend's products because they all compete with each other. Um, let me see. Any ideas for how to get their content marketing going? So I'm not, I'm not sure I fully understand the question, but let me just kind of like uh, repeat what first comes to my mind. So um, you got 300 retailers, 100K a year. So the maximum revenue this company could do is 30 million if they had the entire TAM. Right. So that's one, thing to, that's one thing to think about. Um, and that's if you get 100% market share, which is probably going to be pretty challenging. Um, and they're all enterprise accounts. So they don't want to talk to each other. So this it comes down to like what I think is any reasonable enterprise approach, which is basically just do exactly what we're doing, um, but do it more targeted. So the couple things, I would have a podcast, I would invite the, the main person that's the buyer inside of each of those companies, and I would have them go on your podcast. Then I would chop it up and I would just take a LinkedIn sales navigator um, license. I would take all of the people, director or manager level plus inside of all those, all the companies that you could possibly sell to. And I would connect with 50 to hundred people a day. I would take the podcast. I would chop it up. I would distribute it on LinkedIn as I build that audience. I would then put the podcast on the, on the website. If you wanted to, you could start to send it out by email. Um, and then if you wanted to run account based LinkedIn ads, um, you could also do that. And so like, I think it's just a, a, a well-targeted demand gen strategy. Chris, the issue is that, um, you know, in this really small TAM, uh, these are, these are big retailers. So it'd be somebody like, um, uh, I don't know, let's say, um, these are American companies I'm talking about, but let's mm -hmm. say AGB, a grocery in Florida versus, um, Kroger, you know, mm -hmm. major, major competitors. And, uh, they don't want to talk about anything that they're doing that's smart. I mean, they're very, very secretive about their operations. My friend's company offers a competitive advantage that um, is pretty technical. I mean, my friend has a PhD in math. Most of his team has PhDs in math. Uh, so they offer something that is really a highly proprietary competitive advantage. So really, I mean, the issue is none of his customers want to talk about what they're doing. His challenge would be in trying to get uh, any customer to talk about 
the problems they're having because they'd be afraid of um, of exposing a weakness to a competitor or exposing a strength to a competitor. So that's the real issue. Um, and, and I'm sure there are many other industries like this where mm-hmm. it's a small pool of companies. They're very, very tight-lipped about what they're doing. They don't want to endorse the product. They don't even want to talk about their problems. Yeah. Yeah, so it, let's just pretend in that case that at least the podcast with guests at companies is out and case studies is out. Um, I, you could still run content marketing, LinkedIn account, tar, uh, account on the competitive advantage that you create, whether it's from a LinkedIn sponsored content or Facebook sponsored content or email, you could produce content about why the competitive advantage is and the SMEs inside of the company, whether it's the founder with the math degree or whoever explains on a, what you could go into, like look at Ma's whiteboard Friday with Rand Fiskin as an example, you could go on a whiteboard as early eight minutes on whatever this topic is about how to build a competitive advantage with whatever you're doing. So I think you could do that stuff as well. And then if you had such a narrow um, audience, you could drop those in uh, one-to-one emails or LinkedIn. It just becomes more... um, at that point, I think you have like the over the top stuff happening, whether it's on LinkedIn or Facebook about the competitive advantage. Then you have this like one to one, a more like account based sales approach where you're reaching out with content on a one to one basis. One thing. Uh, thank you for the answer. It's, it's a good one. And it's a little bit reassuring because um, uh, <laughs> no offense, but you didn't you didn't say anything. I hadn't already thought yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they're in a Stuff's, pretty tight spot. But one everything thing is said, simple. Yeah. One thing you suggested once before, which I think is a really good idea, is that you have a small, intimate uh, conversation where you don't invite competitors. So, for example, in the U.S. grocery retail space, there might be a regional chain like AGB down in Texas. There might be another one like Meyer up in Michigan. So they, they, you know, they have good relationships with each other. So they might talk to each other and it might be possible to record that conversation and make discreetly, you know, with everybody's approval, do outtakes that you could then share with other retailers. Mm-hmm. That's a possibility. Or you just do a, uh, an event for the one account and you bring like whatever it is, the store manager of each location into one place. I'm just giving an example. Yeah. And the event is just of those people and you're only recording what you're presenting, not what the audience is saying is another way that you might be able to hack it. So yeah. that's like, if you wanted to go super like in-depth field marketing, that's an option too. Okay, great. I appreciate your ideas. Thank you. Okay, Liz, um, quick one here. Any resources you recommend to master Facebook and LinkedIn ads? So, I mean, there's a ton of resources on Google. um, And so you can look at that. I think that I understand it pretty well. One of the keys that I think people, other people's content gets wrong is, especially if you try and move it into a B2B, that most people that are telling you what to do on Facebook ads are selling a $70 pair of shoes, not a $50,000 a year software tool. And so the stuff that they use is very transactional, short-term focused, and it usually doesn't translate to success in B2B. Um, And so I'd recommend, you know, checking out my content, not to toot my own horn. But the most important thing is finding a, a place, a company where you can experiment and learn and do it. Um, so those are a couple of things that I would suggest, but nothing, figure out what the right strategy is and understand what you're measuring, make sure that you have the right information. And then from there, the only way to get better at shooting a basketball is to go and shoot a basketball. 
Hey, Chris, I got to bounce off, buddy. It's been a pleasure. All right, man. Enjoy the sun. It looks like it might be getting a little shady there. I'll, uh, I'll clean up a couple of these last questions here. It was good to have you. Yeah, um, man. Good to catch up with you guys. To see you next week. Peace out, everyone. Thank see you, man. <laughs> Can you, uh, could you talk a little bit more about your recent post where you explained, uh, the modern day press release? 100%. So I'll pull, I'll actually pull one up and I'll tell, I'll tell the story about how I arrived at this, um, strategy. So, so in 2000, I don't know what time it was, but somewhere in the two thousands, the company I worked for loved to do, um, press releases. They would do press releases. They would put them out on the wire. I would watch our real time web traffic. Nothing would happen. I would question at all the impact that was happening. And so what I did the first time, and there's some big words in here, don't let it distract you. It's more of just like the format is what I'm trying to show is that I basically took what they put in a press release with all these big buzzwords and things like that. It almost felt like the press release was written for investors, not for customers. And I took that and I translated it to like common language for a customer. And then I hear you have the press release, but then instead of putting down on the wire, I job title or however you're going to target it, run it on Facebook. It's unless it's like a super high ACV product or the news is so substantial, it's too expensive to do some of this stuff on LinkedIn. So I was running it on Facebook and for this one, I think it was down to like seven cents a click. Um, cause this was like big news in the medical community. And I would just see how much more effective it was if you just create a press release as if you're a news reporter reporting on whatever happened for your company, but be important about what's in it for them. So this clinical trial came out. It showed that the product that you're using right now may have more side effects than our product, or this new feature came out this, it'll allow you to do this, this, and this, or we have this integration partner or anything, anything that you would write as a press release that you wish your customers would know not selfishly what you want the market or competitors or anyone else to know. But if you want your customers to know it, just kind of filter it through a lens and be like, okay, is this worth communicating at a and spending money to, to communicate this action? And then if you, the answer is yes, then kind of go through that process in the press release, run it, target it and measure it on consumption with the goal of just the market knowing that your new feature came out. Not, not driving leads, not um, driving conversions, but typically what I'll do, now I'll get you David in just a second, but um, I'll link, as you can see, if I share my screen again, the link is actually to a deeper form of con- a piece of content, not to a get a demo. And so it's here, this clinical trial came out. And then if you want to click, watch the presentation of the principal investigator, the primary, you know, whatever that clinical trial term is, the person who organized the study, watch a 10 minute presentation about how they did the, the methods and everything, what they found. Go ahead. So, so my question was, if you could just unpack, so you've got that piece of text that you've, you've um, written, you've tried to make sure that it's kind of customer relevance, customer interest, as opposed to just from your investor's standpoint. Mm-hmm. Could you unpack a little bit about how you, um, who you wanted to put it in front of? This is obviously a topic, we're not going to know this, this subject, but just to share with, how did you decide who to put it in front of? And then what were you looking at within Facebook to be able to say, I think I found those people? Just kind of unpackage a bit more of the mechanics, I guess. Yeah, so let me, it's a, it's a really good question. It challenged me to go deeper. So um, from a layout standpoint, first off, so when I write it, my mind frame is that I'm reporting the news. 
Okay. So that's the first one is I'm not selling a product anymore. I'm reporting news to people. And so the first paragraph is this is what happened. The next paragraph is this is why it's relevant or important to you. Actually, I guess this is, this is why it's paragraph two is this is why it's relevant. Paragraph three is this is why it's important to you. And then the fourth one, the fourth paragraph is like our take or, and, or what you should do next. And so that's kind of like the framework that I follow. And so the first couple paragraphs is if I was reading the New York times and this was published in the New York times, that's how I would, I would want it to read. And then in paragraph three and four, I get to insert what I want them to take away from it. Um, So that's, that's on the content now on the mechanics of how you chose, sorry. Yep. And so, um, medical targeting is very, very easy on Facebook. And so this is basically, this is saying that for almost every, this is in 2017 or something like that, 2018, it was published that basically the product that you currently use, um, has more side effects than this one. And this one is just as efficacious or it produces the same clinical outcome for patients, but it has less side effects. And so I wanted everyone to know. And so the people that we targeted were emergency room nurses, emergency room physicians, ICU physicians, people that liked the American Association of Respiratory Care, um, people that liked certain like nursing um, uh, professional associations. And so that's, I, I was going for scale. This, this uh, piece of content, we ended up getting reach of like three or 4 million people because we also started to hit patients because patients go in here and they hate the product that they go on. And so um, that gives you kind of like a little sense about how I think about it. It's like, who needs to know about this? And then, and then go and find them on job title targeting or professional association are probably the two easiest ones for like medical or different industries like that. And did you, do you find success with groups versus um, individual demographic information or do you, do you do a bit of both or kind of depends? What do you mean by groups? So Facebook groups trying to target particular Facebook groups with that particular content. I guess if the group existed, you thought, okay, yes. Or um, I've never, I've never needed to go after groups. I've never used that mechanism before. Um, yeah. Is it because you've just never tried or you never needed to? I never needed to. There's probably a different way to hit, hit more of the audience in a different way. Um, Thank you. Thank you. You got it. it. You got it. Cool. 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 Let's see if we get one more and then we'll close out and get everyone off to bed. Ashley, where is, uh, what's her name? I forget her name. I'm sorry. Tower. She just, Uh, she didn't know cookies tonight. There might be some after I was, I was nervous for you to even unmute me at all tonight after last week's. (laughs) (laughs) Um, cool. So we'll, uh, we'll finish. Oh, oh, you have a question. Sorry. (laughs) I did. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Okay. So, Email, like curated emails for SaaS brands. Is that a thing of the past? Are those still effective? And if they are still effective and done well, what are some examples of newsletters that you think like SaaS customers enjoy subscribing to and why do they work? So you're paying a third party to put your content in their email? No, 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 no. You're, You're putting out 
a newsletter to your target audience mm. that includes maybe some content about your brand, but also curated news that they ought to be interested in. So trying to become a thought leader through a subscription newsletter. Mm-hmm. I've always, well, not always would be strong, but for at least the past five years, I've moved away from the newsletter format and focused on distributing one piece of content in an email. And so I have one specific action rather than this whole thing. There's an effect. Um, it was studied a long time ago in grocery stores where if you give people too many options, they actually don't buy anything. And so there, it's like very scientific about trying to figure out how many pe- like maple syrup bottles do I want in the shelf. And so over time, it's just like I have one core message about what I'm trying to communicate here. This, you know, this company case study did this or this feature was released. And so it's very narrow. The subject line reflects that exact piece of news and there's only one action. It's click to go and, and view the content. Um, and so I continue to see that approach from email marketing standpoint work better. And again, it comes back down to like all the channels playing together. So I would think about it like a news cycle. And so if that press release blog was going to get launched on Facebook on Tuesday at 1 PM, the email would go out Tuesday at 11 AM. The email would go out to our hundred thousand person database. We'd have to give them two out two hours to click through and read. That'll give us good web traffic right there. And then I'm going to run heavy ads starting at one o'clock to the rest of the audience and kind of build like it's. And then if you were doing it in like a really sophisticated fashion, you would run that for like two days suit like heavy hit the whole audience. And then you would actually switch the content and go to a different news cycle after that. Um, for a lot of companies, they don't have enough news or they're not looking for enough news to support that. And so typically like one a week is more than enough. Um, but that's how, that's how I think about email. Um, I have not like a B tested a lot of things, but I qualitatively feel that that, um, the single piece of content approach works better. And it's easier to create. Indeed. Instead of creating an art, you know, a newsletter with five articles, it's like, well, five separate emails potentially. Cool. Anyone have a, one last question to close out? This was kind of interesting. Like, uh, just, just being me for the last 10 minutes. Um, it kind of feels like office hours or something. I like it. Um, and so, yeah, we're getting a little, it looked like it looked like Atana was enjoying the, the sunshine down there, which is awesome for him. I don't know about all of you. Um, but besides walking my dog or like hoping that there is like a Friday afternoon where I could sneak into the sun for a little while, I haven't, um, gotten outside a ton over the past couple months, which has been tough. Um, on the bright side, Boston is starting phase two as of, uh, as of yesterday. So like restaurants can have stuff outside. Um, there's a couple other things that are opening up. And so like, it seems like we're making some good progress on that side. Um, and again, like this, these are things that I have like a surface level understanding based on what I experience. I am not like reporting on what's happening on the situation necessarily. It's just kind of like how I perceive it. And then the last thing that I think is super interesting for people that are in B2B is that the companies that we work with are now at a higher level in terms of results right now than they were in March pre COVID. And so like 
that I see April as the bottom, May was the recovery, and June is going to exceed period of time before COVID happened, at least for the companies that I work with that have not been completely destroyed or completely positively impacted by this um, this situation. And so um, if you if you all aren't seeing that type of rebound, um, you might want to think about what could be causing it. And so like we saw a drop in April that I think was actually lower. It was actually worse than what it should have been because we pushed too much budget into supporting live Q and A's and webinars and, and moved away from some of the strategy that we would normally do produce content, run ads on it because it just didn't feel like the right time, I suppose. Um, but as of right as of right now, the results across like the 10 or 12 companies that we work with currently are all improving to a pretty, uh, in a pretty drastic way. So that should be a good sign for a lot of people. Um, every week I really enjoy coming here today. I actually didn't feel, um, I didn't feel well, but I, at like three in the afternoon, I took a nap and I got up and I feel great. And so, um, really appreciate all of you joining. I hope you continue to get value. We're spending a lot of time, um, in advance trying to like, you saw the, like the, the roadmap that we had for the first 10 or 15 minutes. Um, so spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to keep it fresh and so that you're always getting value out of it. And I love over time that we've gotten a lot, a lot more narrow in the questions. Like, as you get like level one of these things, it becomes that the real details matter. Like the strategy is actually quite simple. The details inside of it are the important things. And so, um, yeah, pleasure seeing all of you. I enjoy it a lot and I hope you have a great rest of your week. 